Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Rare Enough Podcast, not your ordinary brain cancer podcast. I am Head for the Cure's own staff survivor, DJ Stewart. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about me. I am a four-year, grade four, glioblastoma survivor dedicated to kicking brain cancer's ass. So let's hear what makes today's guest rare enough. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Rare Enough podcast. I am Head for the Cure's own DJ Stewart, and I'm, again, really excited you guys all tuned in, and I'm even more excited to introduce you to our very first guest, Head for the Cure's own Courtney Watson. Uh, Courtney, I know most of your story, so I'm really excited about this. I mentioned that you are, you know, not only a friend of mine, but an employee for Head for the Cure. Why don't you go ahead and tell, hopefully, our listeners a little bit about yourself. Hey, um, so I'm Courtney Watson. I am the Senior Manager of Programs Partnerships here at Head for the Cure. I've been here professionally about almost five years now. Okay. Uh, but personally, uh, I've had a connection with the foundation for seven years almost. So um, my mom actually was diagnosed with a glioblastoma back in 2016 in March of that year. And her doctor mentioned Head for the Cure, uh, the event here in Kansas City at the time. And my family and friends and her friends got together. We had a pretty large team that year, almost like 25 people. Nice. So, um, you know, we all rallied and, and got shirts and everything. And, and my mom was there. Um, she was in a wheelchair. Uh, unfortunately, as, as, as um, most survivors are um, at that time. But um, yeah, it was a great day. We got, uh, you know, all different kinds of merch and, you know, photos and stuff. So um, unfortunately, she did pass that year in December. Uh, but we have continued to do it ever since then. Um, so our, our team still rallies and it's gotten a little smaller every year. But, um, you know, we're still going strong, you know, seven years later. Yeah. And I said, I heard you say, you know, it might have gotten smaller over the years, but I have seen your team and it might have gotten smaller in numbers, but not in heart or enthusiasm or just, you know, excitedness to be there and still actively in this community. And I mean, you personally looking to change this community, make a real difference in the brain tumor community. So I am blown away every time I get to interact with you, whether it's involving work or anything like that, of how strong you are, especially knowing your story that is a probably very similar story that a lot of our listeners will have. So I'm excited to get to tell your perspective. You know, one thing we had had for the cure, especially this year, focusing on is the caregiver. And so to have your perspective be our first episode, I think is absolutely amazing. So if you don't mind, let's dive, you know, back into when you got introduced to the community, when you unfortunately first heard those words, you know, brain tumor, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, uh, it was, it was March of 2016. Um, I lived here in Kansas city. My parents lived in the Southern Metro. I lived up North. My brother, um, lived, you know, in the Metro as well. He was a teacher. I was just starting my first job after college. So we were all busy, um, you know, with life and, my mom was pretty distant um, in in the way she talked, in the way she was interacting with us, which was not normal. Okay. Um, it was it was very different from what her personality normally was, um, and we didn't really think anything of it. We thought, oh well, maybe it's stress, maybe it was stuff at work, you know, just. You don't go to brain cancer immediately, <laughs> That's the truth. and. Um, 
my stepdad travels uh, for work, so he was gone, you know, Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday. So, I mean, he, when he was home, she was fine enough that he wasn't like, it wasn't a cause for concern. And so um, it got to a point where she had missed uh, a girl's night with some of her friends and they were really concerned. They're like, okay, that's not like Sandra. Like she was always early to everything, um, you know, very unlike her. And she even was starting to like be late for work in which every, all of her coworkers are like, okay, something's not right. <laughs> she's usually there 30 minutes before like she's supposed to. And um, so we, we kind of knew something was up. And then it was after the Super Bowl that year, um, I went down and watched it with my family and, you know, typical 20, early 20 something, I was doing laundry at my parents' house <laughs> and I forgot stuff. Um, and so I had met up with her later that week after to, you know, get my things as well as have dinner. And she took forever to get there. And I mean, she worked 10 minutes away from where we were meeting for dinner. Like it was very odd. And when she got there, she was like, oh, sorry. I like, I missed an exit. And I'm like, mom, we've lived here for how many years? Like, you know, the area and the whole dinner is just very odd. And she's super quiet. And I'm like, okay, something's not right. And I remember telling my friend, um, on the way home from that dinner, being like, okay, something's wrong with my mom. Like something's not, not okay. So a couple weeks later, um, my stepdad finally took her into like our family doctor mm-hmm. and they ran labs and things and nothing was yeah. out of the ordinary and they had scheduled an MRI for that weekend or the following week. And they're like, if she has a headache or anything or just something gets worse, just go to the ER. And so sure enough, that week, um, he took her to the ER in Lee Summit and he, my stepdad called us and so I drove from work. My brother had to get out of t- school teaching and we met there and they had already done the CT um, and everything by the time we got there. And um, when we showed up, you know, the doctor came in and she was sitting on like the gurney and in her work clothes because she thought she was going to work. And my stepdad's like, no, like, it's okay. You're not going to work. Like she just had zero cognition. And the doctor comes in and he was like, there, she has a mass in her brain. And I was standing up against the wall and my stepdad was sitting in a chair next to her and my brother was kind of standing next to her and my, and like, it was kind of those out of body experiences. You're like, what? Mm -hmm. And you know, I was just like standing there seeing my brother and my stepdad react to the news. And then my mom's face was just like nonchalant. Like she's like, like she was getting an ice cream cone or something. (laughs) Like it it was so bizarre. And so they're like, obviously we can't, you know, treat or do anything at this hospital, we're going to transfer you to a more specialty um, center. And so that's what they did. And I think when we got there, she was in the ICU, of course, and getting all of her, you know, labs and all that stuff done and meeting with the neurosurgeon. And, and so our neuro-oncologist oncologist actually came in later on. And I mean, it was all foreign language for what he was like rattling off. We're talking about gliomas and this and that. And, you know, my brother's like, is it cancer? Like, and, you know, at the time they're like, we, we don't know officially until we get in there. And so they had scheduled the surgery for the next day. And looking at the MRIs was incredible. And I know it's a weird word to use for that, but yeah. like I'm kind of nerdy in that sense where I like kind of seeing those those no, things. <laughs> I definitely understand that. Um, Tell us more about that. And it, so her tumor started on her left <clears throat> side towards um, like 
or towards the skull. Okay. And then it went over into her temporal lobe, down, and then back. Oh so it crossed hemispheres, and it was over half of it was inoperable. Um, and so they're able to get like 50% of the operable right. uh, tumor. And I remember the morning after she came out of surgery and we went to go see her and she was like herself again. Like it was so crazy how just taking out that pressure and that, mm-hmm. you know, tumor from her temporal lobe or her frontal lobe, sorry. Um, like she got that personality back and she's like, <laughs> she had a full body MRI that morning, which takes mm-hmm. forever. Um, and she's like, Oh my gosh, that took forever. Like, I can't believe that. And we're like, that's the longest sentence you've said to us in the past like two months. Um, just cause she wasn't cognitively there right. and her neuro-oncologist came in and that's when they said, you know, it's, it's grade four glioblastoma. Um, and he really didn't say like a prognosis at the time, but like me being kind of the realist that I am, I knew it wasn't good right. just because the pure, pure fact that they couldn't get all of it out during surgery. Um, and so they're like, you know, we're going to start with chemo radiation, you know, all of the, the standard typical um, uh, care, you know, right after that. But her problem was, is that her mobility was so shot after the surgery um, that she just she kind of was like a wobbling, like a toddler, like the whole time. So she stay, yeah. actually stayed in the hospital for two weeks after um, doing some rehab and kind of getting literally back on her feet. That was a, 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 a lot. Win. I could keep going. But. No, and I, I mean, I know that story all too well and all too familiar with it. But there are parts of it that I really want to get your perspective on that I don't think anyone ever really talks about. You said something, you know, your mother was in the hospital then for two weeks. What was your life like for those two weeks? I can only imagine one of my biggest fears was how Aaron felt when I was in those and I know her perspective but mine was a few days how does two weeks translate in that just unknowing time frame I don't yeah it was really hard um she had her phone at the time and she was just sending us random text messages like nothing was making sense and so then she started getting on like Facebook and stuff and resharing things and we're Mm -hmm. like mom like you can't do that and she just her cognition was so fried that she just didn't know what she was doing um and i was i was scared beyond belief because i was protective of her and like every nurse that came in i was like she can't walk by herself she can't do this by herself like all of that and i know that's just being protective and i know they deal with you know families like that all the time and it's just me being worried and it wasn't fun um i mean i i initially moved back to my parents house immediately um i was living with friends at the time and they were you know, really supportive of it and everything like that. And it just wasn't, I didn't hesitate. I, the night that she had surgery, I went back to my place, packed bags as much as I could. And it was just like, I'm staying at my parents' house until I don't anymore. Um, and so, but yeah, the two weeks, like it was just constant back and forth between our house and the hospital. We were there all the time. Um, I thankfully had a great, amazing, uh, job at the time and they were letting me just not work and and do what I needed to do. Um, so with my stepdad, he was, you know, was able to take some time off. And, um, unfortunately my brother, him being a teacher at the time, he had to go back, um, at certain times, but it was really more so 
when there wasn't much going on. I mean, we knew she was in the hospital doing PT, OT, all of that. So it wasn't anything um, too crazy. But then, yeah, she got to go home after two weeks. And um, our family dog was really excited to see her. So because, I mean, she was home all the time with him. And so he was like, where's mom? Yeah, what's going on? Um, Excuse me? Mm -hmm. I have belly rubs expected, that sort of thing. Exactly. I definitely know what you mean there. I'm going to ask kind of a, a weird question. You tell your story amazingly, but, and I, I understand why, because it's almost conditioned at this point when people share their story. A lot of it is you're talking more about your mother, and I completely understand, but I'm going to ask if you know you can be a little more vulnerable about your mental state. Like, during that, do you feel like you were supported enough? Did you feel like you could ask anyone for any type of support, or did you just have to, you know, grin and bear it and... Uh, that's a good question. I mean, growing up, I, I mean, my family always joked like, oh, like I, I never cried at anything. Mm-hmm. Like it was just that was who I was, and you know, with that such a traumatic experience, unfortunately, like I lost my grandpa in a similar way of cancer. You know, really early in life. You know, I was nine, but like we were also really, really close. And you know, seeing him in the hospital. <laughs> super frail he had bone cancer and stuff and so like witnessing that early I mean you're pretty traumatized um but it was we wanted to be about him my mom Mm -hmm. tried everything she could when we were that young to be like you know no like we don't want to have you guys see him like that and like me and my brother were we would fight tooth and nail to see him um and so it was the same thing with this like my mom looked completely different she was gaining weight because of the steroids Mm -hmm. and seeing her like that, like it was hard. I mean, it, my brother kind of said, he's like, we kind of lost her when she got diagnosed. And it's kind of true because she wasn't herself, the the person that we knew. Um, so you kind of start that grieving process earlier than you anticipate. And it makes you really just grow up overnight. Um, her best friend was like, you guys doubled your age in the span of two minutes. Um, and so, you know, dealing with all of that, it was, it was a huge blow, obviously. I mean, you're not you're not supposed to deal with that kind of traumatic stuff, you know, in your 20s. Right. You know, you're supposed to be, oh, my parents are going to get sick and pass away, you know, when I'm in my 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, helping my stepdad kind of be the, the strong person, um, I kind of felt like I just had to, like, just deal with it and then be strong for everyone else and make sure everything else was in order. And I really neglected myself. And that bit me in the butt so bad after she did pass because my anxiety skyrocketed. I mean, there was was a point like during her journey that, you know, I was just more anxious because of, oh my God, she's going to fall. Oh my God, something's going to happen. I'm going to wake up one morning and she's not going to be here anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go on a work trip and have to fly back early. I'm going to have to you know, this is my last birthday with her. You know, we didn't even get a last Christmas together. Like all of these things, you just worry, worry, worry. And I'm such a type A planner (laughs) that I was like, I can't, I don't have control of any of this. And so I could, I controlled what I could. And I, you know, helped my stepdad with her appointments and taking her there and dealing with that, letting him have a break, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, whether it's grocery shopping or whatever, Um, you know, taking her to the grocery store was 
or any shopping place was extremely hard just because of her mobility issues. And it's awkward. People like people that came up that knew her. I was like, Oh, why are you doing it? And it's just like, she probably has no idea who you are. Like, and how do you say that to a person nicely? Like, and, and thankfully people that knew of what the situation was, you know, obviously they would deal with it. We have a caring bridge site that we would update and, and I manage that. So I would write all the updates. Um, you know, whether it was doctor's appointments or things, you know, I didn't do it every day like some people, mm-hmm. but it it's exhausting. I mean, you're literally caring for someone 24-7, whether you're awake or not. I right. mean, it's that constant worry. And I mean, there was, I had issues sleeping, of course, and, you know, work was, that was the hard part. Like, my personal life was absolute trash that year, but my professional life was doing so well. I mean, I was planning huge events for my old job, like, we were, it was being filmed for a TV show for PBS, like all of these amazing things. But yet I had to go home and it was just this like instant 180 of the super high to the super low. And it was, it was really hard to manage that. Thank you for telling all of that. I, I asked it for a very specific reason because I know that there are so many out there that are going through that same kind of thing. And you said something that I'm so glad you did. Like you admitted that you neglected yourself and that you regretted it. Mm -hmm. You can never take care of someone without taking care of yourself kind of thing. There's some old adage about that, but I firmly believe it's true and not spoken about enough. Like if you are able to, you know, give yourself that time, you're going to be able to give more to that other person. And it's hard because you want, like, there were times where I obviously was like, okay, I'm going to relax but you always have that nagging feeling in the back of your head of like, mm-hmm. I should be doing something right yeah. now. And I, I know it all too well. And I know, you know, Aaron probably deals with this too of like, I should, I should be helping them. I should be doing something, but like, you know, micromanaging or whatever, but like you have to be on all the time yeah. and it, you don't, I mean, it, I can't imagine people that went, like go through this that don't have a support system. Like if it wasn't for my mom's family and friends that would help out and would give us breaks I don't know how we would have done this because, I mean, just thinking and, and knowing of people, you know, now through what we do here at Head for the Care, like, there's people that have to deal with this either by themselves or just have one caregiver. Mm-hmm. And financially, I don't understand how that's possible. Uh, emotionally, that's a lot to bear for, for the caregiver to deal with not only their emotions, but their their loved one's emotions. And physically, I mean, there were times where, you know, as my mom through her journey, like she was gaining weight so bad because of the steroids. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there were times that, so our driveway was really slanted and I had a Jeep and I told her, I was like, do not get out of the car. Like we'd just gotten back to get groceries. It was just me and her. I'm like, just stay there. And she was basically like a toddler with her cognition and she opened the door and I'm like, mom, like I'm literally walking around the Jeep. I'm like, stay in the car, please. I was like, you're not going to be able to walk up by yourself. Sure enough, she gets out of the Jeep and falls in our front yard. And I was home by myself. I was like, our neighborhood's tiny. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to get her up? Like it was, it was struggling it was seriously hard. And by the time I did, like I was calling my brother in tears. Like, I'm like, I can't do this. Like, I need you to come help because my stepdad was out of town um and she fell again when she got in the house and like i just broke down it's just like the little things over and over again that just like chip away at you and it was just that was my final breaking point that was the straw yeah and so it was there's 
a ton of those moments and I don't know how people do that by themselves. I really, really don't. No, I don't think anyone does. I don't think anyone could understand that or should ever have to because it sounds like from what I hear, you are not only, you know, the caregiver or I don't really like that term. Uh, Aaron and I are trying to coin a new one, <laughs> like a co-survivor because yeah. it's happening no, to you exactly. just as much. But not only for your mother, but for your stepdad, for your brother at times. You just had to be the tough one that, that sat there and took everything. How has that changed your life since then? How has it you know, affected your life with your loved ones? And do you have a different outlook on things? I do. Like I said, I was I was a really big planner of things. And yeah. so, you know, even before I graduated college, I was like, I'm going to move to a big city and get a big job and, you know, do all this and that and travel. And, you know, it didn't work out. Right. And so I had to adapt. But even after I got my first job, I was like, it's just the opportunities are endless type of thing. And I mean, when you're in your 20s, you think that way. You're like, I want to do all these big things. And uh, I hit the ground pretty hard after my mom got diagnosed on that. Um, and so after the fact, I was just like, as long as I can still succeed in what I'm doing. And at that point, I was like, I need to mentally get back back to myself. Yeah. You know, I, I had struggled with anxiety all my life. I mean, it is what it is. Um, since from a very young age, you know, I used to have times where I would like freak out over like scary movies <laughs> and looking at back at it now, I'm like, I was having a panic attack at like six years right. old, but didn't know it. So, you know, I was working actually through my anxiety and things like that before my mom even got diagnosed. And then after she passed, it just obviously skyrocketed and, you know, grief and depression hit and I had PTSD after that, just from all the traumatic things that, you know, I witnessed and, and dealt with. It took probably a good solid two years for me to finally even feel remotely myself again and not have a lingering thought that I was going to get brain cancer because that was in my mind from the second I woke up to the second I went to sleep every single day and it was just because my mom like it's it's not genetic right you know you've been tested and everything and so it's just that still that lingering fact that I was so worried about and normal therapy just wasn't working and so I finally went to a different psychiatrist because <laughs> that, that takes time and that's a process to deal with as well. And I finally got on, you know, medicine that I've been taking since then. And it has helped tremendously. I mean, I remember a month into taking it and I was like, oh my God, like I haven't had a thought. I haven't had that like obsessive thought of I'm getting brain cancer. And so thank God <laughs> I've been able to, you know, really work through that through therapy and finally get back on track and you know i'm super thankful that you know my now husband you know during that time he was very supportive and and we had just moved to a different city and he was in grad school so i mean stress is at an all-time high but we made it work and you know he was supporting me while i was supporting him and you know even though it was two or three years after my mom had passed like i was still dealing with the grief i mean you you never get over it obviously and i kind of say just with my experience, you know, with Head for the Cure, that you don't move on from someone passing, you move forward. I love and that. yeah, it's just like you're, like, there's still a journey. You're always gonna be on a journey yeah. of, of being a, a co survivor, you know? And so whether your loved one is here or has passed, because it's, it's like PTSD, it, it affects you heavily. Yeah. So, and, you know, there's still times that, you know, when we lived in Chicago and in Dallas, I was still in therapy, you know, during COVID, it was over Zoom. Mm-hmm. And so I was super proud at myself. It was, I think, two years ago that I was able to graduate from therapy. And, like, I'd never been able to do that before. And, you know, of course, they're like, 
always come back. Like it's, I know it's always there for you no matter yeah. what. But I know now, like, I have my coping mechanisms. I have, I'm on the right path, you know, with, with medicine and, and all of that. Like, it's it's been helpful and it's working. It's a journey, just like dealing with what I dealt with, with my mm-hmm. mom. I mean, it's, it's never going to get easy, but you just have to find the things that work for you. Yeah. Wow. Courtney, thank you so much for speaking so much on the mental health aspect of this. I've said since the beginning of us talking about this whole podcast, we don't want it to be the typical brain cancer podcast. So I'm going to take a second and just say, holy shit, you are awesome. For everybody listening, I know you just heard Courtney's incredible story, but what you don't hear are some of the things that I've gotten to see. I've gotten to see her tell that story in front of thousands and thousands of people and truly touch their lives. I've gotten to see Courtney turn that terrible patch in life into a blossoming career where she affects so many people in a positive way. It's been an absolute honor to work next to her. Like I said, she is absolutely amazing. Courtney, could you do us one last solid to end? I always want to end this podcast on a just flat out awesome note. Could you give us, you know, a story, whatever it may be, just something that you're grateful for from the diagnosis. I know that that's a, a weird thing to think about, but I know from being around you so much that you have turned this into a truly amazing opportunity and mission, and I'm sure you have something for us to, to end us up on a great first note of this podcast. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. You're, you're a great host, and this podcast wouldn't be a thing without you. And what I do for the community... Um, it, it's all for people like you. It, honestly, your positivity and the fact that you're just so upbeat and, and you're just constantly going, that's what why I do what I do. So thank you. Absolutely amazing. I'm so honored to share your story with the whole world. I cannot wait to share so many amazing stories on this podcast. For Rare Enough, for Head for the Cure, I'm signing off. DJ Stewart. Courtney, Courtney Watson. And as always, one, two, three. Fuck cancer! cancer.